Hello, and welcome to the Heathen's Journey podcast. I'm your host, Siri Vincent Clough, and I'm so glad you're here. This is the show where I explore heathenry through a queer lens. We will be talking about traditional witchcraft, runes, folklore, and so much more. Join us, won't you, as we journey to the ends of the Nine Realms and back. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Heathen's Journey podcast. I'm your host, Siri Pluff, and I am back after a short break. So it's spring. Spring has sprung here in Minneapolis. People are getting vaccinated, and it feels like there is some more hope for the future. I think that um, I speak for most people in my life, if not everyone, when I say that this has been a really, really challenging year. And because it's been such a challenging year, I actually am coming back from a content creation break. So I absolutely love my work. I love what I do. And I also think that um, it's really good for creators to get perspective every once in a while. And I needed a break. Um, My health was kind of going downhill. And so I just took a month off. And I know that I am very privileged to be able to do that. Um, I own my own business, so I can set my own hours. Um, and I was still reading for people and still teaching classes here and there, but overall, um, I wasn't doing the writing and podcast creation. That is the bulk of my time. And I just want to encourage you to let yourself take time, let yourself take time to process the year that we've had, let yourself prepare for what's to come. Um, and let yourself just melt. Let yourself rest. Melt with the snow this this spring. Allow yourself that time and that break. I know that I definitely have a lot more ideas now that I am on the other side of that break and um, I'm just very, very happy um, to be back. So I'm actually really happy to be back because... Um, In no small part, because I have a great interview to share with you today. It is with Matthew Venus. So Matthew Venus is a folk magician, artist, writer, and witch based in Salem, Massachusetts. He is the owner and lead apothecary of SpiritusArcanum.com, an online and events-based provider of handcrafted and traditionally created magical wares. He is also the co-founder of the Salem Witchcraft and Folklore Festival, which will be taking place online this year, August 13th through 16th. In this conversation, we talk a lot about spirits, working with spirit familiars, and the spirits of plants. Matthew is currently teaching Foundations of Witchcraft, a 13-month program in witchcraft and folk magic. There will be another round of that starting soon, I believe in the summer. He is also teaching Foundations of Herbcraft, a 13-month course in magical herbalism. This course has already started, but you can sign up for individual classes and perhaps even join the full course late. So before we get into the interview, I'm going to have a quick word from our sponsors. Welcome to the Swamp Witches! Swamp Witch Stephanie is an online magical herbal apothecary for all your darkest desires. Swamp Witch Stephanie started in 2018 with a line of anointing oils enchanted by the Swamp Queen herself. Stephanie has been studying the Western occult tradition, 
American folklore, British and American traditional witchcraft, and historical herbalism for over 10 years, and has brought her knowledge and expertise to each of these handcrafted all-natural oils. And this year, Swamp Witch Stephanie has launched a new line of ensorcelled skincare products. And she would know. Being the drag persona of Marcus Ironwood, Stephanie knows the importance of keeping your skin soft as a babe's bottom. Stephanie is ready to share her magic with Heathen's Journey listeners with 20% off your order at swampwitchstephanie.com. Just use the offer code HEATHEN for your discount. Keep it swampy. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yes. So I have uh, given listeners a little um, introduction before hitting record, but in your own words, um, give your little introduction, talk about the work that you do and kind of anything that you do via either Spiritus Arcanum or your other teaching engagements. Sure. Um, well, uh, my name is Matthew Venus. Um, I currently live in Salem, Massachusetts, um, and I am a folk magician and witch, um, as well as an artist. Um, I own Spiritus Arcanum, as I kind of said, uh, which is an online uh, web store, as well as I do vending events and teaching engagements and run courses through that. Um, I also am the co-founder of the Salem Witchcraft and Folklore Festival, which is a yearly festival that takes place here in Salem that is dedicated to community education and activism. Um, that is every August. And so this year we're actually going to be doing that as an online event um, due to the pandemic. So this is our second year, our third year doing it, but our second year doing it as an online event. Um, so that's one of the other things that I'm really kind of, uh, one of my my uh, passion projects as well. Um, we didn't really see an event like that here in Salem. And so uh, I do that in conjunction with my co-founder, um, Jackie Aloisi, who owns the Cauldron Black, which is a shop here in Salem. Um, yeah, that's a bit about me. Um, I've been practicing forever <laughs> um, at this point, uh, 30 years. Wow. Yeah. I'm that old. <laughs> so, um, and uh, yeah, I, I generally consider myself to be a folk magician uh, I am totally comfortable with the term witch, um, and uh, my practice is largely animist in nature. Lovely. So I just have to ask you, because you're my first guest from Salem, um, and so obviously oh. there's, you know, like a huge, like, thing in the American imagination of Salem and witches and all of that stuff. What is it like to actually be a professional folk magician and witch living in Salem, Massachusetts? Um, it's a really a mixed bag. Um, I will, I'll say this much. Um, I never really thought that I would find myself here. Well, first off, when I was a wee little witchling, when I was like 12 years old, um, I remember reading Lori Cabot's book, Power of the Witch, because literally it was one of the only like 10 books that was at the bookstore when I was a kid. Um, yes, we got all of our books at the bookstore back then. Um, and I just remember thinking like, wow, it would be amazing someday to live in Salem. And, and I had this kind of imagination or, or view of it as well. As I got older and the longer that I practiced, the more I was kind of like, I don't really see myself ever living in a place like Salem. It's just too political. And like my craft is about me and, you know, and, and I don't really need to get involved in that. Um, 
and so uh, I ended up here kind of in a roundabout way in the sense that I met someone at an event in Ohio who I ended up dating who happened to live here. And after several months of us dating long distance, I ended up moving here. Um, and so that's how I ended up in Salem. Um, but it's a lovely little town, actually. I really, I really have a deep affection for Salem as a town. I think it's really adorable. It's really great. Um, they do a, a pretty great job at keeping it um, kind of a unique feeling, small, small town feel. Um, great to walk around, great to explore. Um, as far as the witchcraft element of things, you know, it is. It's a mixed bag. I've met some amazing people people here you know it's interesting to live in a place where i can fully live um as as a witch i guess or as a magical practitioner and not have any real concern about that where i had moved here from most recently i lived in grand rapids michigan which is a fairly conservative area and it's kind of one of those areas where um you know you feel like you have to, to keep things a bit closer to your chest uh because there's a lot of kind of um you know, ignorance and bigotry and, you know, people people uh, trying to be all evangelical. Uh, and think after living here for, wow, over 10 years at this point, um, I maybe take that for granted at times and I have to remind myself because you run into a lot of people that come here as tourists and they're so excited to be here because for the first time in their life, they feel like they can, you know, outwardly express who they are without any type of fear and, and, and that they can generally feel a sense of acceptance. And um, that's meaningful and that's powerful, I think, um, especially if you are from an area of this country that is certainly less accepting or open to uh, those who are magical practitioners. So that's awesome. Um, Salem also has a tendency to get very politicized and very commercial, and um, that's one of the drawbacks to it. Um, but that all being said, uh, there's really a lot of amazing people here doing a, a lot of really amazing things. And um, I feel like as long as you keep your eyes on your own paper for the most part and just kind of focus on the work that you're doing and don't get caught up in other people's politics, which a lot of people here want to get you caught up in their politics, but <laughs> um, but uh, it, it's you you do just fine, and um, you know worry about your magic, you know keep your eyes on your own magic, and that's kind of how I feel for most people in general, particularly in the internet age. You know, it's a good idea to try and focus on our own practice and not get caught up in the back forth wars uh, that tend to happen. Not that I never have been known to do such things. So um. I have, you know, been taking your Foundations of Witchcraft class um, over the last year, um, and I've really come to appreciate your um, perspective. I feel like I've learned so much about um, traditional witchcraft through you, and just like you're kind of a, a vault of witchcraft history, which I am a total nerd for. Um, so... Yeah. Another thing that you should know is that this podcast, I really kind of talk about the two main aspects of my path, which are, you know, like Nordic heathenry um, and uh, traditional witchcraft. Um, so I also wanted to ask you as a person who practices both, you know, like folk magic um, and traditional witchcraft, how do those kind of go together? Like, how do they how do they work for you? Um. Well, it's, I think that they kind of work nicely in tandem, although I would say that for me, there's, there is a distinction for me between when I'm doing witchcraft and other forms of, of folk magic. It kind of depends. You know, a lot of our conceptions of what 
is quote unquote witchcraft or what is, you know, uh, you know, um, folkloric or traditional witchcraft is definitely informed by, you know, popular magic, uh, meaning like cunning folk and, and the popular magic of the day and the folk magic of the people, uh, informs a lot of perspectives of what is folkloric or traditional witchcraft. I would actually say much of the magic that we look at and is currently called, um, traditional witchcraft or folkloric witchcraft is uh, uh, popular folk magic that in a lot of its original forms was practiced by folks who identified as Christian um, or, you know, folks who were cunning people um, and uh, pellers and, and the like. Uh, and so um, there's, there's a bit the, where the main distinction comes in is I, th I think essentially where you're sort sourcing your power from. And this is actually kind of the way that it was, uh, you know, back in the day, uh, the, the, the difference between a cunning person and a witch a lot of times wasn't necessarily the kind of magic they were doing. It was often where they drew their power from, what types of spirits they were trafficking with, right? Um, but that line also becomes blurred. I mean, those, those labels are somewhat nebulous. So um, I, I feel like uh, it, it a lot of times is, is my focus on, on the spiritual forces that I'm partnering with, whether it be particular fam familiar spirits or whether it be working with spiritual uh, spirits, essentially, <laughs> if uh, the like of like the witch mother, the witch father, that type of a thing. Um, those aren't necessarily the terminologies that I use in my personal practice for those types of forces. Um, but when I'm I'm connecting more to a other than Christian or other than folk Catholicism um, lens, that's usually what I would consider to fall within the purview of kind of uh, me doing witchcraft. Um, but in the same day, I could turn around and, and be doing blessings and, and uncrossings and, um, and healings while, you know, reciting the Lord's prayer or the Psalms. Uh, and so for me, that's then when I kind of, to some extent, step outside of what might be called witchcraft, right? Um, that then gets more into like folk Catholicism, folk Christianity. It all kind of depends on perspective. I'm not so concerned about the labels when I'm actually doing the work. It's a little bit more important for me to, to hopefully express those distinctions while I'm teaching people. Mm. But when you're in it, right, you know, when you're in it, uh, to, to most perspectives, some of the work that I do with folk charms and utilizing elements of Catholicism and Christianity is straight up heretical, you know, to people. So that, you know, to that, to that perspective, to the Christian, a lot of the average American Christian perspective in particular, what I'm doing is witchcraft, you know, it's heresy, <laughs> right? Um, not necessarily blasphemy, but heresy. And, um, but to the pagan, the neo-pagan perspective, what I'm doing is awful too Christian, right? <laughs> so, uh, so it's an interesting place to find yourself. Um, now, another part of what informs a lot of my folk magical approaches is um, things that fall into the purview of what we might call conjure or hoodoo, American folk magic. And some of those things I, I really try to keep somewhat more separated from what I would consider, you know, quote unquote witchcraft. Um, but again, it depends on what I'm doing. You know, it, it's, there is a line there, I would say. And it's more of like a bit of a mental shift on, on where I'm focusing, where I'm drawing power upon, what prayers I'm using. Um, but the technology might look very similar, right? Um, However, uh, just to kind of expand on that a little bit further, 
for me, witchcraft oftentimes deals with spirit contracts with sublunar spirits and with spirits meaning like familiar, like fairy spirits, uh, you know, uh, spirits of the underworld, spirits of the dead, necromancy, right? That all falls into the realm for the most part of witchcraft for me. Um, but you could also flip around and say that folk Catholicism and working with saints is a form of necromancy as well, right? So that's where it gets a little nebulous. Um, Witchcraft for me also speaks to, in particular, things like spirit flight, right? That doesn't necessarily exist in the same way in any of my folk magical, quote-unquote, practices. And so for me, that's a very, you know, witchcraft-specific thing, spirit flight and traveling to the other world to get work done. Um, that is one of the bigger, like, hallmark pieces, I would say, for me that defines, like, okay, here we're definitely doing witchcraft. You know, the lines maybe are a little bit less blurred there. Um, but when it comes to doing magical workings, uh, you know... Um, for me, there's a bit of a mental shift and a note of it, but, um, you know, to the outside perspective, I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully that, that clarifies a bit. <laughs> it does. Yeah. I think that it, it's just so interesting because I think that, um, there's this tendency in a lot of, um, American witches specifically to kind of try to renounce everything Christian. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of that comes from, you know, having, a religious trauma in your background, um, having yeah. to do with Christianity and especially evangelical Christianity. Um, mm -hmm. I know a lot of queer witches who just kind of can't get down with, uh, doing the Psalms and all of that kind of thing. But I also think that these folk magic traditions that, you know, do use Christian iconography and folk Catholicism and stuff like that, um, they're that continuation, you know, people talk about this, you know, old witch um, cult that survived through the centuries, which has been largely proven to not be true. Mm -hmm. But honestly, people have been practicing magic continuously. And so much of that looks like practice within, you know, traditions or within that like worldview that we don't typically associate with witchcraft. Yes. I mean, abs I, well, absolutely. And I find that almost anywhere that Christianity or, or Catholicism or Protestantism has been kind of imposed upon people, right? Um, there's this kind of interesting mixture that happens where as opposed to like, out well, I mean, you, a lot of times you didn't have a choice to outright reject it, right? Um, you needed to, in order to fit into society, in order to potentially not end up you know, murdered or in prison, you needed to kind of go along with what the state religion was, right? And um, that being said, like, so much of what is preserved in, in European magical traditions has been done, has, has survived because it was given kind of a, a Christian or Catholic veneer and kind of separated from um, its original source, which we've kind of lost. Um, you know, uh, some of the first people that, you know, were that white people colonized was themselves. <laughs> and um, so we're really far removed from a lot of traditions. And, and I think it was Sarah Lawless or someone that at one point I remember seeing say something to the effect of, you know, the, the living tradition of, uh, of magic of European magic is actually like folk Catholicism. Um, and I think that that's really true. Things that have been practiced consistently, things that were preserved, were oftentimes preserved in folk Catholicism. You'll find it sometimes in Protestantism as well, depending upon where you are. Um, but this is how um, techniques and approaches towards folk healing, folk magic, protection uh, were preserved. It was uh, in the guise of Christianity. Now, 
I don't think that it it was all done tongue in cheek. I think there are plenty of people who adopted Christianity as their religion uh, and truly believed in it, but they still were approaching it from from a popular approach, from a folk magical approach. Approach rather, um, it's very different than the way that the the church designates religion and how it should be practiced and how people actually practice it. But this has been the case since, you know, the ancient world, state religion versus what, what popular religion is and, and folk religion is um, always is a bit different. What you do in your home versus what the church wants you to do there are always different because on a personal and individual level, we adapt and we approach things uh, in a way that's meaningful to us as people and meaningful to our survival. And that is how a lot of magical traditions and folk traditions were preserved throughout, you know, Europe and, and onward. Um, you also see the same kind of thing happening, of course, in a much different uh, situation when we look at, like, you know, hoodoo and conjure in the uh, United States, right? Um, where we have a group of people that were enslaved and forced uh, into practicing Christianity. Um and that becomes then the, the kind of worldview, the approach uh, by which their magic is transposed into. Now, it's not all, like I said, tongue-in-cheek. A lot of these people absolutely still believed in Christianity and, and as a framework for exploring uh, and explaining spirit. That is, um, that's valid. And I think that we need to, if we're going to honor some of the ancestry of the traditions that we're talking about, these folk magical traditions, we need to understand that it's not just of an Year, but that the people that practiced these things also did truly believe um, from a, a somewhat of a Christian perspective. Um, but that perspective is not the same as an evangelical Christian in America. You know, um, that's a, that's a very different kind of Christian um, and Christian perspective than what we're talking about when we're talking about folk magicians. Uh, you know, cunning men and cunning women and conjure men and conjure women. Um, their perspective of Christianity was very different. Um, and, and having some understanding of that and expanding our minds about what Christianity can mean as a magical framework or esoteric mystical framework, I think behooves us because it's been around for a very long time and just ignoring it like it doesn't exist doesn't necessarily help us. I'm not saying anyone needs to adopt it, adopt it particularly if you have trauma around it, but it's good to at least explore it and the history and get some different perspectives in the ways that Christianity has been approached, viewed, played out, but particularly how it's crossed over with magic and helped preserve magic uh, in history. Otherwise, we do ourselves a disservice a lot of times. You can always re-paganize things if you need to. Um, but it's good to understand the historical framework um, and also to give, I believe, to give honor to the spirits and, and the ancestors that, that did preserve this stuff and that did practice this stuff and understand it on their own terms. When I go, go before a lot of my ancestors, I'm doing so with Christian prayers a lot of times because that's how they identified that was their practice. I'm not going to force them to paganize themselves for my comfort, but that's me. Your mileage may vary. Right. Yeah. And that's actually been something that I've been doing as well, um, is getting more comfortable with that in my own ancestor and spirit work. Um, so we talk a lot about spirits and I think that, um, this is one thing that really draws me into specifically traditional witchcraft, um, is the focus on the spirit familiar. Mm. Um, and recently in Foundations of Witchcraft, we talked about familiar spirits. So um, I think that there are a lot of misconceptions about what a familiar spirit is. Um, but in 
your own words, and we'll talk about plants after this, I promise. That's um, fine. <laughs> I, I'm happy to talk about plants. So. <laughs> Fantastic. So in your own words, sort of what um, is a familiar spirit and um, kind of what is the role that a familiar spirit uh, plays in traditional witchcraft today? Um, well, I, it's hard for me to speak to other people and what how the role, what the role of familiar is for them today. I think that, like in modern witchcraft, in most conceptions, I think that the explanation of familiar spirits, particularly what I see online and things like that, to me feels really well. It is historically inaccurate. Uh, I have plenty of pets that I love dearly, but none of them would I necessarily consider in any way to be my familiar. Um, they may be very dear uh, spirits to me, but I wouldn't necessarily consider them familiar spirits historically. Familiar spirits were exactly that. They were spirits with which we had a familiarity and a familiar relationship. And I, I say spirits in the sense of usually these are not beings which are incarnate. Um, and so historically, when we look at familiar spirits and the way that they interacted with the witch or other magical practitioners, so like cunning folk, folk magicians, fairy doctors, things like that, we're talking about a relationship that is usually one that's a tutelary relationship uh, where the spirit helps uh, teach the practitioner different ways of, of healing, different ways of kind of curing. Or uh, in the case of like when we're actually talking about historical tra traditional conceptions of witches, ways to curse and blast people, right? Because when we're talking, the main distinction a lot of times historically about what made a quote unquote witch was that they trafficked with spirits, they had familiars, but oftentimes they were doing things that were harmful to others. Um, now, where those spirits come from usually was one of two places to be considered a familiar spirit. It was usually either considered a fairy spirit, which for me are very much um, usually spirits that I associate with the middle world, if you will. Um, and fairy spirits have their own kind of long history. Um, and depending upon your particular perspective and your particular theology, one of the, the popular conceptions of them was that they were fallen angels that were cast to earth because of their pride and that they're stuck here on earth, quote unquote, like the middle world, if you will, or um, that they, you know, exist uh, somewhere alongside us. Um, and, and, some of the reasons that they might actually help human beings is because they're trying to redeem themselves. Other uh, kind of conceptions about the fairy would be that they are trying to trick human beings because they have a bit more of a diabolical nature. Um, you'll see other perspectives where the, the angels that were cast into hell are sometimes referred to even as fairies, um, but more commonly we then think of them as demons, right? Um, so underworld spirits. Um, and so... Usually those are the ways that when we look at historically how familiars were viewed is either your familiar was either a fairy spirit um, or it was a, a demon or it was uh, on some occasions uh, the spirit of the dead. So these are the three main places that we're looking at getting these relationships. So fairy spirit, uh, demonic spirit, um, or uh, spirit of the dead. So we've got like necromancy, middle world fairy work, chthonic uh, underworld, you know, quote unquote demon work. Um, and these spirits were oftentimes where the quote-unquote witch or magical practitioner got their power. Um, the bulk of their power and a lot of the work that they did was actually accomplished through this. Historically, you received a familiar upon becoming a witch, and that was a part of what made you a witch. Um, like, it's not just that your power was all sourced from yourself as an individual. Your power came from this spirit pact. And so for me, again, this is one of those kind of hallmarks of the way that I view witchcraft is that witchcraft involves spirit pacts. Witchcraft involves two things for me. 
that make it stand out a lot of from a lot of other things. Spirit Pact and Spirit Flight. Those are two things that witches historically have almost always been known for: trafficking and contracting spirits, and being able to leave their bodies and go forth in flight. Um, and so those are important kind of distinctions for me. Um, but yes, in, in occasion, you will definitely see uh, familiar spirits showing up in a lot of different ways, perhaps in animal forms, which is very common, but they are just as likely to show up looking like a human being or a spirit of the dead or any other thing. Sometimes they even show up as plants or objects. Um, and so it's a spirit first and foremost. And though there are some instances of spirit familiars um, inhabiting animals periodically, uh, basically using an animal as like a spirit house or essentially quote unquote possessing the animal. Um, most times when we're talking historically about familiar spirits, we're not talking about an incarnate animal that lives with you as a pet. We're talking about a spirit that is a familiar that, that might occasionally you know live in an animal, but they're also just as inclined to live, you know, under a bush or in a bottle or box or something to that effect as well. Yeah. And I do think that um, there are like very, uh, important you know all paths are valid right so like people working with their pets in terms of like you know and calling their pet a familiar spirit if their pet tends to lend energy to ritual like that's kind of like a more modern working with a familiar spirit however when i think about what i would potentially want from a familiar spirit Mm -hmm. um a corporeal pet is not what i'm going for Right, that. it's not generally going to provide you what with what historically a familiar was. And when we talk about the origins of this concept, it's just important that like we understand there's a rich, actual, real history that was the origin for the concept of the familiar. And so many people in modern witchcraft just overlook it for like, isn't my cat cute? My cat's my familiar. It comes and sits with me when I do tarot. That's great. Don't get me wrong. I love animals. I love my animals. And I have absolutely included them in ritual and I enjoy having them around. But when we're, if we overlook the historical significance of familiar spirits and familiar packs, particularly spirits that can help teach us to do witchcraft better, we are overlooking an entire area of the craft that, like, you're, we're all going to be the lesser for and poorer for not exploring. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes in the modern era, we sacrifice the historical that's actually really meaty and and really speaks to the nature of witch uh, for the sake of what's easily accessible and sometimes more adorable, which don't get me wrong. I love easily accessible and adorable, but let's not sell ourselves short because I think eventually we're going to get bored and find that we're not getting as much nourishment from the craft um, as it absolutely can provide. Sometimes I'll bring my snakes along for things. um, And I have had toads that I I like to have around sometimes too, but they almost do become to some extent little like um, spiritual batteries as opposed to like, they're not like tutelary spirits that are like guiding my hand and, and lending like actual like significant power to the working I'm doing. My cat is adorable, but he's a big soft boy and he's kind of dumb. And I'd say that very, <laughs> very endearing. He's definitely not my familiar, um, but he is a, a dear love and I'm very happy to have him in my life. You know, um, Right. Absolutely. So, um, oh, okay. So there are just so many ways that we can go from here. I think that, um, Okay, 
I'll start with this. <laughs> um, I know that you have many things coming up. I know that you are going to be starting your uh, Foundations of Witchcraft course again, which is, I believe that's a 13-month course, it right? It is. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I should know. I'm in it, but... Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're coming up on... We just did what? We're on, so we have three more lessons, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, so you've got the Foundations of Witchcraft, which this is... This podcast is probably coming out in March. Um, sure. So mm-hmm. that's coming up for you. And then yeah. uh, you also have Foundations of Herbcraft, which is a new offering, which is also 13 months, but it is looking specifically at magical herbalism. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, just tell me a little bit about these different courses. If you were a student, like what, you know, what would you be gaining from taking Foundations of Witchcraft with you versus... Oh. you know, studying somewhere else. Well, I mean, I, <laughs> I try not, I, I'm, but yeah, I think it's good to maybe put some distinctions across. And I mean, I mean, feel free to chime in as someone who's taken the course because, you know, that's always interesting to kind of hear uh, the perspective of someone who's been through it because I mean, I, this will be, when I start up the next round of it, which will probably be sometime late in the spring. So if this is coming out in March, it probably, the next round probably won't be until like May or maybe June actually. Um, but, um, foundations of witchcraft is essentially designed to kind of approach witchcraft from an animist and spirit centered kind of approach, not necessarily from the common kind of conceptions of like, uh, neo-paganism that tends to uh, frame a lot of, uh, current witchcraft. Um, I tend to approach things more from a folkloric witchcraft approach, um, which sometimes is also called traditional witchcraft, um, drawing upon a lot of historical and folkloric approaches, towards uh what is a modern craft i mean it's still it still should be understood as something that we're kind of uh it's it's somewhat reconstructionist in its own way but at the same time uh there's there's definitely room for creating our own craft foundations of witchcraft is essentially meant to give students exposure to certain foundational elements that they're then hopefully going to take to build their own practice and this can be incorporated really into any perspective. If you work with gods and goddesses in a neo-pagan framework, I think that it's still valid. If you're really interested in working with spirits and developing things like spirit flight and working with spirit uh, familiars and spirit contracts, I think it's perfect for that too. Um, And so, I mean, I have people in this course that are brand new and I have people in this course that have been practicing the craft like 30 years. Uh, And so I think that hopefully it provides a little bit of something for everyone and um, maybe some, some interesting and new perspectives that maybe not everyone's come across just yet. Um, So that's what, I think that's kind of one of the things that maybe sets it apart. I just really wanted to put something out there that was accessible to people that was not the, the witchcraft that I commonly see. Um, but the kind of, at least my perspective on the craft, which I mean, my perspectives on the craft have definitely, you know, evolved over the years. I've been practicing for about 30 years now. So, (laughs) um, this is where I've landed, but to me, it's very much, uh, dearer to my heart and feels much more genuine than a lot of kind of the earlier neo-pagan approaches towards witchcraft that I had, uh, embraced as when I was younger. Um, so, but again, you know, it is, isn't necessarily for everyone. You know, I think that if you're interested in a folkloric approach, an animist approach, and you're okay with at least exploring some Christian paradigm stuff, not that you need to practice any of it, but at least exploring it from a historical perspective and understanding how we got here and historical perspectives on what a witch was and what a witch did, uh, then I think that 
you could probably gain a lot from the course. Yeah, actually, that's one thing that I've really, really appreciated about your course. So like I'm a history nerd, like I love um, kind of going down those little research rabbit holes Mm -hmm. um, about how, you know, these things played out in the past. Um, I've also, you know, done a little bit of research into witch trials and you definitely bring like some of the information from that in, particularly when talking about like, oh, this is how people were saying when they were quote unquote confessing witchcraft that they worked with familiar spirits or that they worked with spirits. And I've just found that really interesting um, in learning from you. Um, and it's definitely not something that you get from like a, a more general, like neo-pagan um, perspective, which is fine. Um, it's it's totally fine. It's also like, um, it feels rooted in a way. Well, I think it's, I mean, I think that's because it is rooted in what, <laughs> how we got here really into the conception of like what a witch actually was historically. Um, and and the other piece of it though, is like when we look at some of those trial, quote unquote, confessions, right? Um, you know, it's important to know that these confessions, it, you know, it's arguable about the validity of them. But when we look at confessions of people like Isabel Gowdy and like um, uh, Bessie Dunlop and things like that, that weren't extracted under torture and gave extraordinary details about things like uh, spirit contracts and learning things from spirits. And, um, you know, when we look at Bessie Dunlop, it's very much from the kind of conception of like a cunning woman doing the work that she does. Isabel Gowdy is straight up like a witch. Um, and so those are things worth looking at because, you know, it's debatable, but I mean, from the work of people like Eva Pox and like, um, you know, Emma Wilby, uh, academics that have explored this stuff, there are at least, there's at least the potential that, that, that these point to, you know, if not like some ancient preserved, you know, fertility cult of witches, you know, but at least perhaps the preservation of certain techniques of spirit, uh, work and spirit contracting, uh, as well as uh, spirit flight and some some quote unquote kind of uh, shamanic techniques that have existed and maybe were preserved, as opposed to just thinking, well, these ladies were just making all of this up. I mean, there's extraordinary detail and some really interesting things. Nonetheless, even if it is all made up, um, that source material formed a lot of understanding of what witches were quite early on, and it, it's a wealth of information that might be utilized at the very least for inspiring. Um, and designing some of our own practice. That reminds me. Um, I have a book recommendation for you if you haven't read it. Um, oh, yeah, what's that? There's a book called Witches, Wife Beaters, and Whores. Oh, okay. I've not um, no. Yeah, so it's all about um, witchcraft and the law in, okay. like, the colonial days of mm. the United States. So, like, pre- you know, revolution, um, how were they kind of, you know, like regulating, um, mostly women, but also men. Um, and it, it's, it's interesting. I'll, I'll send you a link to it. Um, I think that that you would like it if you're up for academic reading. Yeah, (laughs) It's it's written, it's written by a very witch obsessed, uh, legal historian. So, okay. Well, see, and one thing, one thing that I want to put out there to anyone that may be listening or cares, <laughs> um, one suggestion that I have, and I wish that someone had told me this when I was younger, actually, 
is that for every popular, like, uh, you know, Llewellyn or Wiser witchcraft book that you read from a contemporary author writing from usually a, a neo-pagan perspective, which there's nothing wrong with that. But for every one of those that you read, I suggest that you also pick up a book on folklore um, or an academic work exploring the witch or witchcraft in some form or another. It will give you a much more well-rounded understanding, I think, of, of witchcraft and inform your practice highly. And I know that read an academic text um there's a certain allure towards reading something that's just much more approachable but it uh it, it behooves us to actually understand historical perspectives about folklore and about witchcraft because there is there is some meat some serious meat on those bones and so uh try not to overlook that for for just like kind of the easily consumable you know mass marketed uh modern witchcraft uh books that are out there and i I don't mean to speak ill about them there's some fantastic authors and people doing great stuff out there but it's good to have a more well-rounded library than i tend to see from a lot of folks yeah i always advise students to like check the bibliography um, yeah, for, absolutely. you know, like <laughs> yeah. popular witchcraft books, um, because a lot of these authors are just doing incredibly detailed research, but you know, they're presenting it yes. in a more, um, accessible way. Um, and yeah, I think, uh, especially on the heathen side of my practice, um, it's been very important for me to actually read the poetic edda, the prose mm-hmm. edda, you know, the source materials the that the mythology comes from. And then it's also been interesting to read retellings of those yeah. over the years yeah. um, to see like, okay, this was published in 1950. How did they translate it? Mm-hmm. And how is that maybe informed by like the time too and the way that they chose to translate it, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Like- Massive nerd, I know, but it's really helpful. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it's good to. I mean, it's very good to look at the actual source material um, that that inspired other writings because it does inform better to look at the actual source. Um, you know, there are a lot of looking at. You can that's that way you can kind of see when an author is is taking their source material and kind of viewing it through a lens which is not exactly its original intent, or um, maybe they're leaving out some 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 bits that are are worth exploring you know yeah Yeah. so let's talk a little bit about herbalism um so just so you know and so the listeners know i've done a bit of training in um magical and medical herbalism here in minneapolis through magus books um i've done about a year and a half of my own study um but uh you focus primarily on magical herbalism and um i know that this is kind of it can be kind of hard to find specifically magical herbalism courses out there. Yes. Um, So how do you approach magical herbalism? And also, what is your experience with magical versus medical herbalism? Um, Well, yeah, I mean, I feel like I haven't really seen like a full on course on magical herbalism before. I mean, this is a part of why I teach the courses that I do teach is when I see that like, okay, no one's doing this. Like I feel capable and qualified to do it. So let's do it. (laughs) You know? (laughs) And, and, um, you know, we're in a golden age of distance teaching, which is wonderful because then I can reach uh, people that are really engaged and interested in what I'm trying to teach. Um, so, okay. So your question was how do I approach magical herbalism and what's my experience with medicinal and magical herbalism? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, well, so I, as I said kind of earlier, I tend to approach things from an animist perspective. So for me, 
my approach towards working with plants is one that is also largely kind of spirit-based. So working with conjuring forth the the spirit of that plant uh, and aligning it towards the, the purpose of the working. Um, I think that too often we tend to look at herbs and magic as just some ingredient uh, in a spell. And a lot of times that is how it is uh, approached. That is how it is focused upon. When you look online at things, you know, grab rose petals, grab rosemary, throw it into a bag, voila, magic. Um, that really leaves out, again, a major opportunity. And that opportunity is to work with the spirit of those herbs to call and conjure them forth and align them towards their purpose. Um, not just treat them as just some expendable ingredient in a spell. Um, oftentimes when people speak about using an herb for something, I'm like, well, that's a very apt terminology <laughs> as opposed to working with a, a plant mm -hmm. for something, you know? Um, not that I never use that terminology, it's common usage, but, you know, uh, I think that for me, the approach is one that is first and foremost grounded in kind of uh, working with plant spirits and um, the concept of conjuring those spirits forth in alignment to our work. So that's, I think, a big part of it for me. Um, now, obviously, we're not going to get to know and be best friends with all plants in the world, but for a part of this, really, I think that you can do very effective magic and very effective herbal magic if you know even just 10 plants very well and you've formed solid relationships with those plants. Um, and so that's a part of like what we're going to explore in this course, as well as a lot of like the folklore of these plants and the ways that they've been used historically, but also techniques for uh, conjuring forth plant spirits, working with plant spirits, aligning them to purpose, and really kind of getting to know uh, plants and, and, and plant life uh, better. Um, so that's one of the things that I'm really hoping to focus upon. Um, beyond that, my own experience with this is like, you know, I've been interested in plants and, and herbalism ever since I was a child. Um, and, you know, I think it's one of the things that is, as soon as I really started exploring magic and witchcraft, I've been interested in making things with plants, you know, uh, my business right now, and things I do is make incenses and oils and things like that. So, um, really developing, um, relationships with plants and understanding how they can function in concert together, um, or even in antithesis, in, um, in opposition to each other at times, uh, is really an, an interesting way to, to create effective magic. Um, and so really, you know, it's just been many years of studying the folklore of different plants, um, you know, hanging out in, in nature and, and really kind of watching how certain plants grow and forming relationships with them. Um, that's been a big part of my approach towards these things, you know, um, and so that, there's that piece of it. As far as my exposure and understanding of like uh, medicinal witchcraft or witchcraft, <laughs> medicinal herbalism, um, you know, really my exploration of all of that has usually been through more of a folkloric lens and a folk healing lens. Um, so yes, I, I utilize some medicinal herbalism in my own practice uh, for myself. Uh, however, I, you know, haven't studied for years under different, you know, uh, you know, different uh, accredited herbalist training programs uh, to the extent where like this course is not one that is meant to be medicinal herbalism. It's not like we will never talk about the medicinal usage of herbs in it, but um, I'm not trying to instruct students in that realm of it. Also, because there are so many other great resources out there for that and people who are much more uh, adept and skilled when it comes to medicinal herbalism than I am to teach them. So we will touch on that, but it'll be more about like folk healing, folkloric uses of herbs that that will come up as opposed to me trying to uh, teach students to be prescriptive and um, 
uh, you know, in their own kind of lives with that. I just don't, don't want to kind of focus on that so much as I do in building a relationship with plants and working magic with them in tandem as spirits. So what does it mean to connect with a plant spirit in your experience? And how does that differ from connecting with fae, um, human, or even animal spirits? Um, that's a really good question because plant spirits are very different. Um, they I feel like a lot of times are less individual. Um, if we were to break it down into certain ways, I feel like you're a lot of times dealing more with sometimes what we might call like an, an upper world, quote unquote, spirit that is more of an oversoul that is like the spirit of Rue, right? Um, or sometimes more of maybe an underworld or maybe fetch spirit kind of um, that we're talking about with plants that there is um, some of this a little bit more of the individual plant there, but, but there's not so much of a middle world soul from my experience of it. Uh, hopefully that terminology makes sense to some folks. Um, it's more upper world, lower world kind of combined, uh, the individual plant and, and where it grew and, um, how it was nourished and, and all of those things that play on the actual material of the plant. Right. And then kind of the overarching soul of, um, what is rosemary? What is lavender? <clears throat> and so, so there's a bit of that there, right? You know, um, for me, uh, also the, 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 the quote unquote intelligence of plants is different. I feel like in the way that it expresses, um, itself, uh, just through when you're doing kind of, uh, spirit work, journey work with it. Um, it is not, I would say that, it, that there's definitely in a more of an ease in some ways with working with like familiar spirits or like Faye or, or, um, you know, or other type of spirits, uh, spirits of the dead, um, because there is oftentimes more of a, of a, it's strange to say this about the Fae, but there's more of a human element to that, um, where at least these things oftentimes are appearing in, in kind of humanoid forms and, uh, the, for, the way of kind of uh, interacting is more similar. I don't, from my experience, plant spirits don't tend to express themselves in exactly that same way. Um, Yeah. And I mean, that's something that is more of a deeper conversation. And I find that like different individuals experiences will vary, but, um, I think that you can very much access plant spirits. It's just the experience from, from my perspective is one that is definitely other than human. Um, and, and you find varying degrees of what we might call quote unquote human interaction with other spirits, but plants are their own wonderfully weird thing. And, and it's great. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm even thinking about, you know, like engaging with a plant in terms of how it grows. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, if you're looking at engaging with like mushrooms, um, which I know are fungi and not plants, but bear with me. Um, we'll count them. <laughs> the, the world of flora, I guess. Um, yeah. uh, they're, they have this like intensely beautiful mycelial network um, and ways yeah. of communicating and their whole life cycle is just really interesting and different. And so when I've thought about working with something like chaga, um, which is, uh, they often grow on birch trees and birch is very, very essential in Nordic herbalism. Um, mm -hmm. so chaga of course makes sense to me to work with as a plant. Um, yeah. But it's, you know, it's, it's thinking about that network and how it relates. And, you know, with birch, um, I was recently researching birch. Um, 
because I'm developing a relationship with that plant, um, that tree, and they grow in such an interesting way. Like they tend to grow really fast and they're like in the border between spaces. And I find that working with a plant spirit magically, um, if you understand the biology of that plant and like how it works, it's a little bit easier to communicate with the plant. Yes, absolutely. And, and that is, that's why I say that like, you can have really powerful magic with only like 10 plants. If you really know them well, like you, and knowing them well, for me, it's, for me is when you, this is where ideally then you're getting a little bit more on a personal practice level into like somewhat bioregionalism because it's of benefit to be able to watch the life cycle of these plants or the, the growing patterns of these plants and like, where does it grow? What does it grow by? Um, you know, what does it look like when it's just, you know, uh, forming a bud or when it's flowering or, or whatnot? Um, these are all things that I think highly inform that as well as like understanding perhaps, you know, the, the biology and the chemistry of the plant as well. Um, again, you know, the course that I'm teaching, we're going to focus on a, a lot on folklore and folk magical uses. But there's a big part of this where I am highly encouraging and giving kind of resources and suggestions for students for, for taking that to the next level with plants because it highly informs your relationship with the plant. To so truly understand it. Who are you? Where do you live? What's it like for you to grow? What do you need to grow and to be strong? You know, those things all inform understanding of anything, any spirit, any any person, any plant, any animal. Um, and so, um, yes. It's it's much more about like taking a deep dive and getting to know these plants as opposed to just pulling some book down from the shelf of correspondences and be like, well, you know, uh, Damiana's for love. But what the hell is Damiana? Where does it grow? You know, <laughs> why is it for love? You know, um, so so, you know, things like that are, are really what I'm trying to encourage with this um, is to take a deeper dive than just looking at plants as just some, you know, ingredient to check off of a list or some correspondence, quote unquote. Let's talk about correspondences. So I love yeah. working with correspondences, but I also encourage everyone Absolutely. to kind of like create their own correspondences because, yep. you know, it's your relationship with whatever it is that you're working with magically that is important. Yes. Um, so for example, I'm allergic to cinnamon. Guess what's in a mm -hmm. ton of folk magic remedies? Cinnamon. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to use a lot of cinnamon. So <laughs> if I see, if I see you ordering anything for me that has cinnamon in the future, I'll be like, just so you know, I appreciate yeah. it. Um, yeah. I have a deep love for cinnamon. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I'm allergic to the, the oil specifically, I think in okay. cinnamon, but then it like gets in the powder. Yeah. It's yeah. It's just like a whole thing, but that means yeah. that I have to have my own, you know, personal correspondences for whatever people are typically using cinnamon for. Um, so it just means that you mm -hmm. have to kind of think a little bit more deeply, but, um, there is within magic, this tradition of, um, sympathetic magic, and this is very clear in herbalism. So, you know, I even remember, yes. uh, doctrine of signatures stuff from working with, yep. um, Liz at Magus. So if, you know, this plant looks like an ear, it probably has something that will help with, you know, your ear hearing functions. Um, so let's talk yes. a little bit about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely, that's one thing we're going to get into in the class for sure is talking about doctrine of signatures a bit and where some of that comes from. Um, but yeah, that's one of the things that for me has always been 
fascinating, right? Um, you know, mullen kind of looks like lungs, and a lot of times it was used in smoking mixtures for things like asthma, right? Um, we uh, when we look at like one of the ones that always springs to mind for me also is like cloves. Cloves are said to look like little rotten teeth sometimes, and they're used for toothache, you know, um, because they numb the gums and 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 have that that property. Um, also, I mean, there's a certain level when we when we not so much fully doctrinal signatures, but in um, functionality to some extent, like the effect that that plants have uh, informs sometimes their ma- like the the medicinal or physiological effect that plants have oftentimes informs their magical usages as well. So, like for instance, as I said, clove will numb the mouth, um, and uh, alum, for instance, not necessarily an herb, but alum will. Um, well, yeah. Um, alum will uh, make your mouth pucker, right? It kind of, that's, they use it in a lot of souring type of things. Um, slippery alum will cause your throat to be soothed. Uh, if you are, if you're ill, a lot of times it's used for a sore throat. Um, and all three of those are used in stop gossip work. So if you think about this, we have a plant that numbs the mouth one which makes your mouth pucker up and one which soothes uh, an inflamed throat. And those are all used to get people to stop gossiping against you, um, which, I, you know, that's just a great example to me of like when we look at how things function, how they feel. And then that directly informs the magic around them. Right. I love that. That's such a cool example. Um mm. So we've been speaking for almost an hour, I think maybe an hour. Um mm-hmm. What is one of your favorite folktales surrounding plant magic? Oh, um, you know, it's, I was thinking and I'm like, I, you know, I don't know if I have a favorite one. I guess I've always enjoyed tales of, you know, people transforming into plants and kind of stories around those like, you know, Apollo and Daphne or, you know, Apollo and Cypricaris, uh being turned into trees and, and, and whatnot. You know, all of these lovers of Apollo that unfortunately, or, or, or you know, would-be lovers of Apollo that turned into plants. Um, and it's not just Apollo, but we find this across the board, you know, of stories of people transforming into trees or plants. And those tend to be, that's one of my favorite genres, I guess, of kind of folk tales, right? Um, I mean... It's not, I don't really have a folk tale about it so much, but I'll tell you a little bit about one of my favorite plants. And that's, um, I adore like the plants that are, that are generally referred to as sink foil. It's like one of my favorite, I have it tattooed on myself. Um, it is one of those kind of, uh, plant allies and, and, and plant partners that I work with very frequently. Um, because it's great. It, I mean, it really offers itself to so many different uses. Um, you know, in conjure, it's called five finger grass. It tends to have like those five leaves. Um, and, uh, it, sometimes it's more leaves depending upon the species. Sometimes it's seven leaves. Um, but with the five, the five fingers of it, it's meant to sometimes, you know, mimic a hand and be kind of like a hand that can grab and draw whatever it is that you need towards you. Um, and it, the five fingers are usually associated with things like, you know, love, money, uh, health, power, and wisdom traditionally are the, the five things that it's meant to be able to acquire or draw or hold on to for you. And, um, it has further kind of associations, you know, and, you know, of course, cause Christianity always wants to <laughs> lay, lay Jesus onto all the plants. Um, and so it's sometimes associated with the five wounds of Christ, you know, the four uh, that happen to the hands and feet and then the, the spear to the side. Um, as well. Um, so that's probably 
you know, one of my favorites um, that I, you know, I don't have a specific tale around that one, but it's just, you know, it's one of my ride or die plants, really. <laughs> um, one of my desert island plants, if you will. Um, and I, and that really actually came from, you know, when I was younger, living in an area where singfoil grew all over the place, you know, and, and, and just seeing it so frequently and, and being curious about it and watching it grow. Um, you know, uh, not only is it a, is an excellent plant it, it being able to assist us in acquiring all kinds of things, but, uh, you know, being able to actually have it be something that grew in the backyard, you know, quote unquote, like a weed, uh, there is a closeness to it. And I have a lot of fond memories of it, you know, just growing around it where I was playing as a child. And I think that there's, there's an element of that that's important as well. I love that. Yeah. I think that, um, the plants that are close to us and the plants that are, you know, within our lo locale, uh, are, yeah. we can create such deep relationships with them. Yeah. It's an excellent place to start. And then you can always try expanding outward, you know, um, and very few of us are going to have incense growing in our bed. It's a great plant, you know, a great resin to work with. Um, but, you, it might be a lot easier to connect with things that you have an accessibility to. Absolutely. Um, so uh, we're nearing the end of our conversation. Um, what, you know, other than, of course, your class, um, how would you recommend people begin to go about learning some magical herbalism? So, uh, there's, I mean, honestly, again, my, my kind of same recommendation, check out books on folklore too. I mean, really look at it, uh, books on plant folklore, because those are the books that like all of these, uh, neo-pagan authors are going to, to write their books. Um, and so sometimes just go to the source. So if you can find books on plant folklore, I always recommend that. And especially if you can even find them on more regional folklore, um, other things like books and things like that, that I would maybe recommend. There's so many, um, but, uh, I really, I like, uh, there's a, a three book set from Dale Pendle. That's really great. Um, which is like pharma, uh, pharma, pharmacodynamis, pharmacopoeia, uh, pharmacognosis. Those three books are excellent. If you can get them, um, you know, there's a book called Witchcraft Medicine that's a really good one and that's interesting. Um, of course, you know, a good place to start is you can always go with Cunningham's Encyclopedia of Magical Herbs. That's like the book I got when I was 12 and like really got me jazzed and started down this path. But of course, you grow and you expand beyond that. Also good to, again, look at his bibliography and see where he got a lot of that stuff because it's good to know the source of some of the folklore and why and how we use things that way. Beyond that... Um, as we kind of already said, you know, look in your own backyard, start to identify the plants that grow around you. I mean, most of us have plantain and dandelion and mugwort and all of these wonderful magical plants growing in our own backyards. And there's, there's so much that can be worked with them and, and so much to kind of uh, explore with them. So start there, start in your neighborhood, start in your backyard and, and look at the growing patterns of those plants. Get yourself like uh, a field guide, you know, to plants in your area and, and start researching ab about their properties uh, and how they grow and then look at the folklore with that and then the magical usage and, and, and go from there. And if you don't have a backyard, what herbs do you have in your kitchen? Get to know those, you know, <laughs> um, start, start for what's near you and what's accessible and, and build those relationships through understanding and through uh, reaching out to connect with that. And I don't think you'll, you're likely to go wrong. Absolutely. 
So thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a fantastic conversation. Yes, thank you so much. Very much appreciate it. Um, I'll do a quick plug. If you're interested in more, um, you can find me on Instagram at, at spiritus underscore arcanum um, or my website, which is spiritusarcanum.com. Um, I do have a lot of classes and, and workshops coming up in the future, so feel free to check it out. Even though Foundations of Herbcraft is starting in February, I know this is coming out in March, there is still an option to catch some of the classes as one-offs, and there's probably still going to be an option for people to join the class after it has started. So stop by, check it out, um, and reach out if you have any questions. Highly recommend. All right, well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> Yeah, it's been a pleasure. It's great talking to you as always. So. Of course. And that is it for today's episode of the Heathen's Journey podcast. A huge thank you and shout out to all of my students and patrons for making this work available. If you want to become a patron and support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash northernlightswitch. I post full moon and new moon ritual guides, rune readings for each of the turning of the zodiac season, and so much more. If you would like to follow me in between episodes, you can find me on Instagram at northern.lights.witch or on Twitter at northlightwitch. Until next time, stay weird. Thank you.